Ladies and gentlemen, we've lost only five minutes off of our timeliness plank, and I plan to finish on time, even if we're five minutes late starting. Ever since the beginning of the Republic, both state and federal judges have had wide discretion in imposing sentence. They have had discretion about the sources of information they could use. They've had discretion in imposing sentence within a range based on their own mix of considerations of desert, deterrence, rehabilitation, and incapacitation. They have had discretion in deciding on the weights and seriousness of all of those factors. Some judges believe that violent offenses are more serious than property offenses. Others hate stealth offenses more than violent offenses, and so on. And they have had, in addition to the discretion implicit in the range for each statute, the discretion to choose between consecutive and concurrent sentences. It has added up to a great deal of variation, judge to judge, urban versus rural, and from one region of the country to another. In a northern city such as Chicago, a crime involving a small transaction in drugs would lead to an award of probation. In a rural southern city, the identical crime would lead to a 20-year sentence. A national consensus developed that that is wicked because the rule of law means treating likes alike. It means a judge-free approach. And so in 1984, with no opposition, Congress passed a determinate sentencing law. Uh, there have been parallels in several states. The Sentencing Commission guidelines became effective for crimes committed after the 1st of November, 1987. Now, the package has several components, more elaborate fact-finding, statements of reasons, appellate review, ranges based on the seriousness uh, of the main offense with aggravating and mitigating circumstances. And those who favored this package have generally hoped that it would end judge-to-judge -judge and region-to-region -region disparities, promote candor in sentencing, give us at least relative values among sentences, if not giving us the right sentences where rightness is defined by a particular moral or utilitarian theory. Now, one is entitled to ask, I suppose, what is it and will it work? And that is the purpose of our panel today. There are those who believe that however well a system of reducing discretion is designed, it is very difficult to implement in practice. There was a national consensus in 1984 that this was a great idea. And as soon as any set of draft guidelines was promulgated, the consensus evaporated. That is a, a traditional a pattern in the regulation of conduct by the government. Uh, and it is carried over to the regulation of sentences. There are those who would treat uh, determinate sentencing as no different in principle from price control. Uh, it is imposing a single uniform price for a single activity and who would therefore predict that you would get the standard responses to price control. You will get black markets. And the parallel to, the parallel to black market here is charging discretion. The prosecutor and the defendant can take the crime off the books 
by not charging the real offense, that is charging some subset of the offense, by withholding from the judge the information necessary to impose the uh, offense, I mean to impose the real guideline sentence. And there are, like in any other form of price discretion, forms of misbehavior. That is, if the guidelines require a sentence that is too high for the judge's druthers, one may get, as you get in states that have, say, use a gun, go to jail laws, a much higher rate of acquittal or conviction on lesser included offenses, or to put it, uh, to put it mildly, cooking of the facts when the time comes to make uh, the decision. So these are possible responses uh, to guidelines which any authors of guidelines have to control. Uh, the, the worry in the end might be uh, that we would end up with a very substantial fact-finding apparatus, but because of the various forms of evasion, no greater uh, uniformity in real sentences. So that, I think, sets out the program for this afternoon's panel, a description of what it is that's being done, some questions about will it work in practice. Now, here to discuss these questions are two members of the Sentencing Commission and one member of the criminal bar. Our first speaker will be Eileen Nagel. Now, Professor Nagel is a holder of a PhD in a social science that taught her how to compile and analyze data. And she chose to put that skill to use in a law school, the University of Indiana at Bloomington, where following exposure to large numbers of lawyers, she decided to look at the data involving sentencing. Now this was admirable as a venture, and it led to a number of highly interesting and informative articles. But it had a dark side. In 1984, there came a need in government for people with her skills so she was sentenced to serve on the Sentencing Commission and has been there ever since. These days, Professor Nagel uh, prefers to be known as a lawyer, which she has since become, and not a social scientist. So I give you Professor Eileen Nagel, a professor of law with a sideline. I told Frank that I didn't want him to introduce me as a mushy-headed social scientist because then I would be blamed for all the fuzziness in the guidelines. <laughs> it's really Steve Breyer's fault. <laughs> for 10 years, these things are made for tall people, the United States Congress wrestled with the tripartite problems of federal sentencing, unwarranted disparity and its sometime corollary discrimination, dishonesty, and excessive leniency. Disparity left us with cohorts of offenders who, despite conviction for the same offense and similar criminal histories, serve, for example, a range of time in prison spread across 15 years for bank robbery or 19 years for heroin distribution, with some serving no time at all. Moreover, unfettered judicial discretion provided a shield for discrimination some district court judges systematically treated blacks and Hispanics more harshly, while others used the court to promote a system of alleged justice where minorities were given light sentences as an accommodation to past societal wrongs, the latter pattern without regard for the dire consequences this practice holds for minorities and other victims. Female co-defendants routinely received lesser sanctions in accordance with paternalistic assumptions 
This in spite of the increase in the absolute number of crimes committed by women and with almost total disregard for the inequities caused by such a practice. While many judges gave excessively light sentences for economic crimes, thereby compromising deterrence and precluding the potential for sentences to promote crime control, others treated white-collar offenders as deserving of extremely harsh sentences, not only for the crimes they had committed, but for the alleged sin of having led or been born to a more privileged life. Race, sex, and social class of the offender, rather than being neutral and irrelevant to sentence determinations, exacerbated or mitigated the levels of punishment in no consistent way and for no justifiable reasons. In addition to unwarranted disparity, sentence pronouncements were misleading. A 12-year term of imprisonment meant four years in most instances, but only the victim, his family, and the public were duped. Because of this systemic sham, each player in the criminal justice system second-guessed the next, with no one recommending a sentence thought to be appropriate to the offense. Finally, despite conviction for serious felonies under past federal sentencing practices, over 40% of the federal offender population was sentenced to serve zero time. For tax violations where the government and the taxpaying public are the victims, 57% of those convicted were sentenced to zero time. And for property offenses, the percentage goes as high as 60. Is it no wonder that the absolute rate of crimes continues to soar? Under past sentencing practice for many offenses, there is little doubt that crime pays. The question of equality versus discretion lies at the heart of each of these problems and the controversial proposed remedies. Disparity for persons convicted of like crimes with similar criminal histories can easily be remedied by prescribing the same sentence for each but attempts to define what are like crimes and what are similar criminal histories immediately reveals the hidden complexity of this seemingly simple solution. According to whose values do we define likeness of crime? By what criteria does one equate a robbery with an embezzlement? What is the measure of similar criminal history? Are five arrests with one conviction similar to one conviction? Are three sentences of two years probation for past crimes similar to one sentence of two years imprisonment? Even assuming consensus could be reached as to what are like offenses and what are similar criminal histories, is the same sentence for those similarly classified a step towards equality? Could not one argue, as is often heard in the court, that conviction for some is tantamount to prison for others? On the strength of these arguments and derivatives therefrom, many judges and most defense attorneys argue for individualized sentences with a maximum of judicial discretion. The United States Congress, as Judge Easterbrook has said, in crafting the enabling legislation for the United States Sentencing Commission, opted not to choose between A, a system calling for the continuance of unfettered discretion, and B, one with excessive rigidity, giving only the appearance of equality, but rather to compromise. The vehicle was to be mandatory sentencing guidelines, binding on the court, but from which the court could depart for unusual, atypical, extraordinary cases. In 1985, President Reagan appointed, with the advice and consent of the Senate, 
three federal judges, three former law professors, and one former prison warden to serve two, four, or six-year terms on a bipartisan, full-time commission whose primary task it was to promulgate sentencing guidelines for all federal offenses. The enabling legislation specified four purposes, just punishment for the offense, deterrence, incapacitation, and effective correctional treatment. All four statutory objectives were to be maximized. No single purpose was to predominate. After a year's experimentation in drafting and testing of three different approaches to sentencing guidelines, each incorporating varying formats, structures, degrees of judicial discretion, principles, and theoretical bases, six commissioners forged a coalition and agreed to the following principles of drafting. First, similar offense categories defined by varying statutes would be grouped together under a single generic heading. So for example, we took all of the various fraud statutes and we grouped them under the generic category fraud. Second, the base sentence for each offense category would be determined as a result of a commission's discussion, a process that would be anchored but not bound by an examination of the average time served in past years for offenders convicted of that same offense and the percentage given a non-incarceration sentence. Three, for articulated policy reasons, the commission would adjust base sentences for some offense categories up or down relative to past practice. For example, for the sake of deterrence, sentences for tax evasion might be raised. For the sake of public protection, sentences for violent offenders would be lengthened. Four, base sentences for each offense category would be modified by a set of what we called specific offense characteristics. The standard for the commission's decision for inclusion as a specific offense characteristic would be either A, that empirical analyses of past sentencing practice showed that judges routinely distinguished one offender convicted of the base offense from another on the basis of such a characteristic. For example, the amount of or type of drugs in drug offenses, the amount of monetary loss or degree of planning in a fraud, the degree of physical injury in a robbery, the possession of a firearm in a burglary. Or B, the relevant statute makes such a distinction, such as the use of a weapon in a bank robbery, trafficking in controlled substances involving an individual 14 years of age or less in a drug offense. Or C, some special compelling reason was articulated to justify including the specific offense characteristic. For example, the degree of planning had been included for fraud. Thus, it was included for theft since frauds and thefts involve similar behavior. Five, convictions for conspiracies and attempts would generally be treated the same as the object offense with only a modest downward adjustment. Six, all base offense sentences would be subject to enhancement by the judge if the offense involved a vulnerable victim, an official victim, or restraint of a victim. Seven, all base sentences would be subject to an upward or downward adjustment by the judge depending upon the offender's role in the offense. Eight, the total offense sentence level would be eligible for a downward adjustment if the judge deemed the offender to have demonstrated acceptance of responsibility for the offense. Defendants who plead guilty would not per se be entitled to this adjustment 
nor would defendants adjudicated by trial be precluded from receiving it. The adjustment would rest solely within the judge's discretion. Nine, an offender's criminal history score would dramatically affect an offender's ultimate sentence. The more severe the past sentencing record, the more the past criminal record would exacerbate the sentence for the instant offense. And 10, for nonviolent or otherwise non-serious offenses, judges would have the discretion to opt for a non-incarcerative sentence, or in the more serious of these cases, for a sentence that substitutes community or intermittent confinement for some or all of the prescribed incarceration time. Agreement to these 10 premises, coupled with a commitment to write guidelines in an iterative process over a period of years aimed at reducing disparity, increasing certainty, honesty, and uniformity, extending the use of short shock incarceration for economic and other crimes, form the core of the rationale that govern the United States Sentencing Commission's drafting policy. It was further agreed that consistent with the legislative history of patently rejecting amendments proposed to format sentencing guidelines as a tool to manage prison capacity, the Commission would consider the impact of its guidelines on prison capacity, but it would not determine what would be an appropriate sentence on that basis. Moreover, it would neither subscribe nor agree to an a priori assumption, as advocated by many just desserts proponents, that less rather than more punishment is appropriate. Finally, it was agreed that the overriding goal would be to issue sentencing guidelines that would provide justice for the victim, for society, and for the defendant. Guidelines which hopefully would contribute to a more effective and fair system of criminal justice for all. The guidelines promulgated went into effect on November 1, 1987. Offenders convicted of the same base offense all begin with the identical base sentence. The judge is then instructed to modify that base sentence in accordance with the presence of a prescribed set of specific offense characteristics, victim adjustments, adjustments for role in the offense, post-offense behavior, and the offender's criminal history. Regardless of the individual judge, his or her jurisdiction, the race, sex, social class of the defendant, that list of adjustments is the same. And each time the court finds it appropriate, the degree of adjustment is the same. To illustrate, all offenders convicted of robbery who discharge a weapon have their base sentence increased by five levels. That's approximately a 60% increase. Every offender adjudged a minor participant in the offense has his base sentence decreased by two levels, roughly a 25% reduction. Recidivist, violent, or drug offenders with two prior convictions are all subject to the same sentence set at or near the statutory maximum, with no parole, all time to be served with the exception of good time. Whether one appears before Judge A, B, or C makes no difference to the basic sentencing structure. The judge must, however, still judge. He or she must make findings of fact, exercise discretion in applying the proper adjustments, accept or reject a plea agreement, choose a point in the final prescribed range of sentence, a range that often goes between 12 and 25%, and decide whether or not to depart in the unusual case. 
contrary then to the characterization by some judges often repeated in the press that the new federal sentencing guidelines eliminate judicial discretion, substituting in its place a mechanistic computer program where judges have no role, the guidelines in fact strike a balance between the prior system of unfettered discretion on the one hand and rigid presumptive sentences tied to the offense of conviction without regard to variation in the offense or the offender's criminal history on the other. To be sure, judicial discretion in federal sentencing has greatly been curtailed, but we believe that it has been done so on the basis of logic and rationality pursuant to the statutory purposes as specified clearly by Congress. Unbounded judicial discretion, however theoretically laudable a goal, however great its potential for justice, did not in fact produce a system of sentences of which this nation could be proud, in which our citizenry could take comfort, or to which our public could look for protection from criminal predation. It was not only equality among and between defendants that Congress was seeking, but equity within the society. The former focusing on the rights of defendants, the latter on the rights of victims, society, and defendants taken together. Thank you, Eileen. Our second speaker will be Judge Stephen Breyer, another social scientist whose past has come back to haunt him. <laughs> Though Judge Breyer's degree is in law, uh, he, like many, has uh, taken up an interest in uh, social science, this time economics. As a professor of law, he specialized in economic issues like regulation and copyright. Now that led him to DC, where he was the chief counsel for the Judiciary Committee and the architect of airline deregulation and many other regulatory reforms during the Carter administration. But while he was there, the Judiciary Committee did a great deal of work on the bill that ultimately became the Sentencing Act of 1984. When he proposed to go back to the Academy, he suffered a small diversion uh, the, the route to Harvard stopped at the U.S. Post Office and Courthouse in downtown Boston, uh, where he has become a circuit judge uh, and acquired a reputation, I must say a deserved reputation, as an absolutely sterling jurist. Uh, when the bill on which the Judiciary Committee had worked uh, finally passed in 1984, he was recalled to implement uh, the sentencing portions uh, of the legislation to which he had contributed. So I give you a quintuple threat lawyer, economist, professor, judge, and sentencing commissioner, Steve Breyer. Thank you. That was a very nice introduction. I, I've been talking about the guidelines to judges all over the country. I, I don't usually get that nice an introduction. <laughs> I don't actually. If you want to know what it's really like, I mean, the, the, uh, uh, about last November, do you remember last November? That the time's important. Last November, I was in the 11th Circuit, and um, I was talking to a very nice uh, judge, Judge Hill, and he was making conversation at dinner. and being polite and friendly. He said, well, what did you do before um, you were a judge? Feeling desperate for conversation. Um, he said, uh, I said, well, I, I was in the Congress. What did you work on? Um, 
I said, well, I, I worked on um, uh, airline deregulation. <laughs> he said, you worked on airline deregulation, did you? <laughs> I said, yes. He says, and now they've got you working on these sentencing guidelines, have they? <laughs> he says, um, hmm, yeah. I said, yeah. He says, uh, tell me. He says, they didn't just put you in charge of the stock market, did they? <laughs> so, I mean, that's the sort of, uh, uh, well, all right. But I'm not, I, what I'm going to do in the next 10 minutes, I, I do not intend to uh, praise the guidelines, uh, nor to bury them, for that matter. I'm going to explain them. What I want to do is, what can I, if I only had you for an hour, I could make you semi-expert. And for a day, my God, you'd be, all right. But, I mean, it's they're complicated. There's this whole entire book. And uh, so when you hear the criticisms, I've only said, we've thought of most of it. One, Frank actually found one in an opinion. It's very technical. He was absolutely right. Nobody thought of it. And we changed it. But most of the important ones we did think of. And uh, so uh, it isn't usually on all these things. There are two sides to the argument. And I uh, only point as evidence that if there weren't uh, on each of the issues that you'll read in the paper brought up, if we didn't have a side, I don't think Congress would have let them go through without some delay because there was a lot of hostility to them. So all I can say in 10 minutes is uh, uh, explain. What is it that I want you to know in 10 minutes about these, uh, uh, this document, uh, this huge uh, uh, thing, complicated as it is? And what I'll do, and Eileen's given us a good start, uh, is I'll tell you what the two main purposes were. I'll tell you the six or seven main steps to work them. And, and I'll tell you four or five questions that you should be asking yourselves and give you a little sketch of the answer. Okay? Now, what do I want you to Keep in mind, keep in mind as to what the two purposes of these guidelines were. Eileen has mentioned both. First, people were very fed up with how the system worked where the judge says 12 years, but the parole commission says four years. Well, the judge, knowing he's going to really uh, only get four and wanting to give 12, gives him 36. But this time, the parole commission fools him, says 35. Now, knowing that, they are, I mean, so this goes back and forth and benefits nobody. Uh, and the only people in this confusion who really are totally confused are the public, who can't understand what the judges are doing and how the system works. And therefore, what Congress said, our first purpose is called honesty in sentencing. Honesty in sentencing means the sentence that's given is the sentence that will be served. And therefore, goodbye parole, it is gone, abolished. And when the judge gives four years, it is four years. The only exception to that is 54 days of good time you can get off each year after the first year. With that minor exception, goodbye parole's gone. If the Supreme Court upholds this, I hope my fingers cross up to Charles Freed, I think probably they will, but um, um, uh, that's it. This is statute's law, and there is no more parole. That means the judge, if he wanted four years, better say four years and not 12, and it's going to be our defense attorney's job and the prosecutor's to explain that to the judge. But um, um, the sentence given is the sentence served. Honesty in sentencing. The second major purpose was more uniformity, not total uniformity, but increased uniformity, less disparity. What do I mean by disparity? I mean, I know the judges in our district, and they do all this individualized sentencing. I have one across the hall who's great at it. And he tells me every day, I say, you're absolutely right, sounds great. And I've met people in Texas who also do it perfectly, absolutely correctly, perfect individualized sentencing. Of course, they reach very, very different results for cases that are seem to be identical. And so while each individual judge thinks he does it exactly correctly, when you go and look at the judges across the country, you see a great deal of disparity. Indeed, some objective impressionistic evidence for that is not just in Eileen's figures, but after all, in the Southern District of New York, they said, let's introduce a lottery. Why? So that the defense bar understands uh, that it's random what judge they get. Why do they care? 
random. I suppose they may think that the sentence may depend not just on the crime and the offender, but also on the judge. That's why they have the lottery. So at least there are some people who believed, and Congress certainly did, there was too much disparity in sentencing, and we're going to make it more uniform. Those are the two purposes you keep in mind, honesty and more uniformity. All right, now, what are the seven steps to applying this document, which I'm only going to tell you briefly, because I want you to see, and you're going to laugh at the end, because it'll sound too mechanical. Uh, but it isn't so mechanical as you might think. All right, I'll, I, won't, I need an hour to, to explain that part to you. You just have to take my word for it now. What are the seven steps? Step one, the person's convicted of robbery. We'll take our example. Convicted of robbery. What he did, he went, pointed a gun at a teller, took $50,000, ran off, kept it, <laughs> and uh, he had one prior conviction for robbery, one prior serious conviction. What happens? All right, I say to the judges, here's what you do, judge. It's not as complex as you think. First, you find the right page. That's step one, all right? They get, some get lost at that point. You know, just in case, just in case, you can't, there's an index. And uh, what the index does is you look up the crime of conviction, and the crime of conviction sends you to the right page, which in the case of robbery, you'd look at the statute to send you to page 2.21. It says robbery. Most people would be able to associate that without the index, but some don't. All right, so we're now step one at the right page. Step two, what do you do? You look at the base offense level. See, that's a number. That throws quite a few judges. But it's 18. 18 is the number, all right? So you remember that, base offense level. Then step three is, and that just means all robbers start at the base, 18. Then step three consists of five specific offense characteristics. What these specific offense characteristics are are ways in which the robbery might be performed, with a gun, without a gun. Hurting somebody, not hurting somebody, and how badly. Uh, how much money did you take? Uh, were you after drugs and uh, 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 did you uh, kidnap somebody in the process? Those happen to be the five, all right? They're more under robbery than under most. Under most, there are only two or three, sometimes none. Under robbery, there are five. So you have to look and see, how much money did he take? Well, I said $50,000, so you're going to add two. So now 18 plus two is 20. And I said he pointed the gun at somebody, you add three for that. So 20 plus three is 23. All right, that's step three. You get the specific offense characteristics. Step four is just do what Eileen said. There are a few characteristics, a few things that apply to every crime. And there are seven, in fact. Seven's a lot to remember. Suppose it's the most anybody can remember at one go without looking back. All right. But seven is what there are. There are three that have to do with victims. Was he an official victim? Was he a particularly vulnerable victim, an old person, a child? Did they kidnap the victim? And then there are four others. Where was he in the offense? Was he a big fish or a little minnow? All right. What's his role? Big fish, little minnow. Did he try to obstruct justice on the way? That is murder a witness or something. All right. Uh, and uh, uh, did he, uh, in, in fact, uh, uh, plead guilty? Uh, but we don't say that. What we say is, did he uh, uh, accept responsibility? Right. <laughs> um, and um, so don't tell anyone I said that. And, and, and then um, uh, uh, also, what? what? Right. right, right, that's right. It's glossed over. Um, just the way the criminal justice system does it right today. All right, there are some problems that exist. We didn't solve every problem in the criminal justice system. I will admit that right now. And uh, 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 then there's uh, uh, multiple counts. Uh, and that's very complex, the most complex part. Uh, and uh, I will save that for a day when you have the eight hours. It's extremely interesting, <laughs> but I don't think today's the day. All right, now, uh, that's uh, the next step. All right, step five. 
Just what Eileen said, look to the past record. This is past record. No, offender characteristics, offender characteristics. So far it's offense, now it's offender. Offender characteristics. Well, what are they? It looks complex. I'll tell you what they are. Past record, past conviction record. I agree we've made it complex. How long ago did the crime take place? How many crimes were there? Was he a child when he did them? Or was he old? Uh, uh, how recently did they occur? Was he out on bail or probation or under criminal justice guidance, detention, etc. when this was going on? There are many ways in which we look and manipulate and, and massage the past criminal record, but what it comes down to is past criminal record. All right, then step six is you turn to the chart and you get, uh, sorry. <laughs> that used to happen in meetings all the time. People, <laughs> all right. Uh, and you look to a chart, and what you discovered, we were at level 23, which was the offense. He got three points for his serious past criminal conviction, and that brought him over to 51 to 63 months. Uh, and our robber, $40,000, $50,000, points the gun at a teller, one prior serious conviction, will get 51 to 63 months, which with, with good time is about four to five years. And if we did our job the way we said we did it, you will discover judges all over the country telling you that four to five years is about what that person gets typically now. All right? That's how they work. All right, now what are the two mottos I want you to remember? Remember two mottos. What you've got is you've got our two purposes, you have our seven steps, and now to understand them you have to have two mottos, which were our mottos, our slogans, our slogans. Uh, slogan number one, rely on past practice. Rely on typical past practice to get this money. Uh, sorry, to get the numbers, to get the numbers. I'm thinking robberies. <laughs> uh, to get the numbers, you rely on typical past practice. Typical past practice, see, cut off the extremes. And the second thing, slogan, again, Eileen mentioned it, evolutionary. We have not done this perfectly. We haven't come anywhere near to perfection. But it's an empirical process that'll lead us see how these judges apply this document. We will collect information, revise that information, learn from it, then over time, year after year, move towards a goal, which is a fairer sentencing system. Now, what are the questions that I'd like you to have in your mind? Let me list four or five, and I'll run through them in no more. Do I have another minute? Okay. Look, first you should ask yourself, where did these numbers come from? I told you. They basically came from 100,000 pre-sentence reports that we had, 10,000, 10,000 analyzed in detail in our computers to find out what happens to people now. And by and large, those reports, the actual information going back and interviewing probation officers, etc., they were there in the computer, and we used that to generate information about what happens typically now. That's where those numbers came from. Second, an exception to that? Yes. What's the biggest exception? The biggest exception is in the area of white-collar crime, tax evasion, insider trading, etc., where we, for reasons of policy, looking at those numbers and saying, my goodness, here's theft, theft of $10,000, people get X, fraud of $10,000, more people are out on probation, get no prison, and get lighter prison sentences. What's the difference between fraud and theft? I was taught in law school, fraud is just larceny by trick, which is a form of theft. So why should there be that discrepancy? 
Why should there? We could think of no reason. And therefore, we did indeed take the crime like the white-collar crime fraud, or insider trading, or tax evasion, and we moved it up. But the way in which we moved it up is that lots of people who previously would have had no confinement, now will have one, two, four, sometimes six months of confinement, a few months in community treatment center, halfway house, etc. but it must be confinement. That's the major way in which these guidelines are stronger or more serious or raise penalties compared to the past. Second question you should have is, what's the overall impact on prisons? There will be an enormous impact on prisons due to the new drug legislation with serious mandatory minimum penalties which we have no control over for better or for worse. There will be a serious impact on prison due to the mandatory minimums in the statute for three-time loser offenders which we have virtually no control over for better or for worse. In addition to those things over which we on the Commission had no control for better or for worse, these guidelines are estimated Estimates, that's your, your department. But uh, a very complex 20 different sets of all kinds of assumptions, 20 different answers, and the 20 different answers range from a minus 2 impact, minus 2%, to a plus 10% over 15 years. Uh, and if you wanted to take the heart of that, you'd get to around plus 5, plus 7, 7% roughly, somewhere in there. Uh, so so that's, that, that's a, probably what they do. A third thing that you ought to ask yourselves, which I won't answer, is um, what's the most difficult problem? I told you that it's multiple counts. What's the most difficult unsolved problem? And that, I hope, is a problem that we'll get to right now, which is the problem of plea bargaining. I'll leave you with that. It may be a problem for discussion. What you should at least remember, remember our two purposes, the seven ways in which they apply, and the two slogans, past practice and evolutionary. I'll stop here. Thank you, Steve. There are, there are some district judges, I will not remark on, on who, who believe that sometime while the guidelines are being prepared, Steve dropped his portfolio and all the numbers got scrambled up and they never got put back together correctly. But I have, I have been defending Steve against this charge for, for more than a year now and it was somewhat embarrassing to see a small substantiation today. <laughs> our, our third speaker is, has uh, no PhD, He's not an economist, but his past is still haunting him. Uh, he has had 22 years of experience as the executive director of the Federal Defender Program in Chicago, and the wisdom to put his experience in perspective. Mr. McCarthy has watched uh, the criminal justice system in the trenches for a long time, uh, and today offers us his evaluation of the new sentencing guidelines. Derry? Thank you, Judge Easterbrook. Uh, not only do I have to follow two of the more articulate and better apologists of the guidelines, but I think I start with a slight disadvantage as I read the program. I guess I should ask you to raise your hands and choose between equality or discretion. And I would imagine that if you were asked to raise your hands, most of you would raise your hands and say you wanted equality rather than discretion. And having accepted that, I tell you that it will be my view, I don't know that I'll save too many souls, but it will be my view to suggest to you that the discretion answer might be the more appropriate one. Uh, I obviously am in opposition to sentencing guidelines, which 
uh, as the federal sentencing guidelines, for the most part, take away the discretion of the trial judge. I am opposed also to guidelines which, as the federal sentencing guidelines, literally render to us a minimum mandatory set of sentences. Incidentally, I do not speak, I'm the chair, happen to be, fortunately, the chair of the criminal justice section of the American Bar Association. I do not, however, speak for the section or for the American Bar. However, I think it's somewhat notable uh, that the American Bar Association shares the view essentially that I have just mentioned now and is opposed to the sentencing guidelines. I probably had some minor part to do with that. So at least there I saved a couple of souls. Incidentally, real briefly, uh, the ABA and certainly myself uh, are not opposed to guidelines per se. We're not opposed to guidelines which are intellectual benchmarks. We are opposed, however, to the mechanical rules type guidelines which I think I read into these particular guidelines. The ABA, and I, I, I say this with some interest, the ABA has referred to the particular guidelines that you've just heard eloquently defended as sentencing by robotics. Uh, and I think that might be a fairly good answer. Uh, Judge Breyer mentioned there are two reasons for the guidelines. Uh, I, I tend to agree. I think there's an extra reason. I, I, the two reasons, I think, to support guidelines, if you will, one he articulately mentioned, and that is a justification or reason, would be to eliminate disparity and indeed to create a uniform sentencing system. And that's a very salutary goal. And I suggest to you respectfully that when Senator Kennedy uh, created the enabling legislation, that's certainly what he had in mind. Um, I'm reminded, however, many years ago, uh, I had the honor of serving as a law clerk for a distinguished district court judge. And we talked about this subject. I learned much from him. And he said to me then, and I think what he said then was accurate now, he said, Terry, we will get uniformity of sentencing when we get uniformity of defendants. And we will never get uniformity of defendants. I respectfully suggest then to you that you cannot in my opinion, quantify, as it's been the attempt here, the matters surrounding a particular offense, nor can you quantify, if you will, the individual characteristics of a particular defendant. Certainly the sentencing guideline people have attempted, and, and, and with all good uh, intention, to do at least the former, to quantify the offense. They, they far less quantified the defendant, but they certainly tried to quantify the offense in these particular guidelines. I suggest to you that that attempt was flawed. It was flawed in several instances, and I'd like to very briefly mention them. First of all, what they didn't do is take into consideration the threshold determination a trial judge makes in sentencing. And that threshold determination is whether or not the defendant goes in or stays out whether or not the defendant, in effect, gets probation or goes to jail. The criteria I submit to you for making that determination are different than the criteria for making the second determination. If the judge says it's a jail time sentence, now the criteria that a judge uses to determine the length of the sentence are different criteria. Necessarily, the guidelines could not and did not take that into consideration. Secondly, uh, in this attempt to quantify uh, the, the various crimes, if you will, I suggest respectfully that the commission created an exceptionally complex set of guidelines. Now, I know 
Respectfully, Judge Breyer disagrees with that, but the fact of the matter is Judge Breyer probably has a genius IQ or very close to it, and I say this not to, and secondly, he wrote the bloody guidelines. <laughs> uh, the fact of the matter is we in the trenches uh, that read them are having problems with them. We are having serious problems with them. We drop our papers all the time every time we, <laughs> we think of these things. Uh, I share with you a true story. Uh, you talk about this is going to be simplistic. Um, I cannot and I will not reveal the circuit, but I'm told in good authority that probation officers, having been trained in the guidelines down in Texas, came back to their circuit, were given a test and given a set of facts, and they worked on those facts, and they came up with the sentence. And the sentences ranged from probation to 20 years in prison under these guidelines. That's after being trained in them. Uh, I think if you've got complexity in guidelines, and I suggest they are complex, by the way, and, and certainly the, the people in the field, the judges and the people that deal with them think they are, if you, you're going to get a variety of interpretations, let me give you the one that we're already finding, obstruction of justice. I, I know you'd be shocked to find that obstruction of justice means when the defendant was first arrested, he didn't immediately confess and say, go menisai. That has become an obstruction of justice. These are the kinds of interpretations that we are getting. The size of the fish, believe me, is a difficult thing when we get to doing, doing with these things in the courtrooms. Next, of course, they take discretion away from the judges. Uh, logic dictates if you're going to take discretion away from judges, you've got to give it to somebody else. And they did. They gave it to two bodies, if you will. First of all, they took it themselves. Uh, and albeit that we had a very able and dedicated commission, social scientists or not, uh, I, just don't, <laughs> I just don't believe respectfully that three federal district court, excuse me, federal judges and uh, three non-judges, frankly, uh, people who really know nothing about the individual defendant who's going to be before the court or the circumstances of the particular crime, that they should assume to themselves the discretion of a district court judge. Uh, this body supposedly is against judicial legislation. I think that's judicial legislation, respectfully. Next to that they give it to, of course, the prosecutor. And many of you may feel very comfortable in the fact that now the prosecutor will do the sentencing rather than the district court judges. I, of course, do not like that. And frankly, if you're honest with yourself, you can't like it either. You can't like it because what does it do? It invades the traditional separation of powers and you espouse separation of powers. Uh, the judge, excuse me, the prosecutors now have far more discretion, in my opinion, in sentencing than indeed do the district court judges. Uh, finally, of course, uh, the, we have the attempt to uh, get into quantifying the defendant. And the only attempt I think they made, and I stand to be corrected, is in regard to the past criminal history. But the problem there is this. They are saying that we have dispar we've had disparities in sentencing. Well, what have you done? You've now quantified the prior disparities in sentencing by using the prior disparate sentences. The fellow who had marijuana down in Texas against the fellow who had marijuana up in Alaska. The first received 15 years, the second got probation. But you are going to now use those same 15 years in probation as the source of your only characteristic for a defendant. Literally, and this is my biggest problem with them, they've taken out, if you will, uh, literally written out of these sentencing guidelines, the traditional humanistic 
aspects of sentencing. The mitigation, the extenuation, that for which we criminal defense lawyers are famous or infamous, as you would prefer to call us. Uh, the things when we talk about the age of an individual, we talk about their emotional uh, condition, we talk about their good, good character, letters from people that know them, their ties to the community, their families, their responsibilities, the problems they might have had. All of these things that I think go into sentencing, their employment record, are they going to be able to get employment? What did they do after they, did they start to rehabilitate themselves after they committed a crime? All of these things are now written out of sentencing. I think it's a mistake. Uh, I think there's a second reason, by the way, for, for the sentencing guidelines, and I, I think you people might feel more comfortable with the second than you are the first. And I think the second reason, if we're honest with ourselves, is to justify, if you will, uh, the request of the public for more severe sentences, to put more people in jail and to put them there longer. And I think the other side of the aisle in Congress uh, was more concerned about that aspect of sentencing, and some of you may feel comfortable with that. Uh, that aspect, of course, of sentencing is based upon the assumption that the, and I've heard it already through this conference, the judges are mollycoddling. The judges are bleeding heart judges. Uh, what was the other phrase? I heard a beauty here. I forget what it was, but uh, weirdos, weirdos, yeah. <laughs> but anyway, I, I am suddenly the apologist for district court judges. But anyway, it's based on that assumption. I suggest to you, first of all, that assumption's inaccurate, and secondly, I ask you, respectfully as intelligent people that you are to look at the consequences of that assumption. First of all, judges, frankly, are not soft on crime. Let's disabuse ourselves of that notion. Now, if you're a politician, you're running for office, you run on that, certainly. But being honest with ourselves, that's not the case. The president stood up on this platform and told you that since from 80 to 86, we put a third more people in prison. You can look at the federal statistics. From 1970 to 1986, the federal prisons have increased, ready, 86%, 86%. And you tell me that judges are soft in crime. The fact of the matter is, if you want to be honest with yourself, and I'm talking to federal court now, who are these judges, these bleeding hearts? Most of them, most of them were appointed by President Reagan. You're not going to find too many ACLU types on the bench, and they seem to be blamed for everything at this convention, by the way. <laughs> And that's truly the gang that couldn't shoot straight. If they tried to put a parade on down the street, they'd have the cars going in different directions. But I hear them being blamed for everything that I've heard here, to be honest with you. They're not on the bench. Who's on the bench? Former prosecutors are on the bench. That's the best way to be a judge, is be a prosecutor. Who else is on the bench? You people are on the bench. Members of this society are on the bench. And you tell me, you tell me that these are the people that are soft in crime, and I respectfully suggest that that's not so. I finally want to end up with one little thing and ask you to consider some consequences of this idea of putting more people in jail and putting them there longer. Uh, I ask you to suggest that and challenge you, if I may, the bright people that you are, to think in terms of maybe thinking of alternatives to incarceration. I agree, we have to have punishment. Everybody agrees on that. But must that punishment always be incarceration? Come on, if, if, the, if this person's not a threat to society, can't we punish them in some more humane way, some way that doesn't hurt us as much? You want to know how much it hurts you to punish somebody and put them in jail? Let me share with you. Incidentally, we have 40,000, roughly 40-some thousand federal prisoners right now. Okay, the federal prisons are 50%, 56% overcrowded, and now add to that the figures that Judge Breyer mentioned uh, from the drugs, from the uh, career criminals, and now from the sentencing, and I think the sentencing are gonna be higher, but that's beside the point. Add to that, let me tell you what it costs 
for one bed in the Crossbar Hilton. $66,000 to build it. And that's minimum uh, security or, or uh, medium security. That's not Marion or someplace like that. It costs more. And in addition to that, $13,000 a year to babysit this individual. That's pretty expensive. Now, you're going to have to make a decision, aren't you? And you're, somebody's going to decide that we're going to lose, depending upon who's elected in November, either some social programs or uh, Star Wars, one or the other, or as the president put it, we're going to lose either money to Amtrak or the Coast Guard. But somewhere along the line, we're going to lose money. It's going to cost us a billion dollars just to handle the prison problem that we're going to have. Finally, I suggest to you, and this is the biggest argument of all, and this is my last comment, that in addition to the prisons, look, if you will, think of the cost on the system of criminal justice. I think Believe it or not, I, I am an apologist for the criminal justice system in the federal courts. I think it works. I think it works well because we've got talented people involved in it. And this it works notwithstanding the actions of, of a Congress and uh, uh, politicians and, and legal, supposed legal philosophers who have tried to, quote, reform us over the years. But it still works pretty well. But look at the burden on that system to the United States Marshals, the United States Attorneys, the federal defenders, the CJA attorneys, the probation department, whose work will be, I imagine, doubled. Judges, the work that's going to be imposed upon them. And finally, we get the Court of Appeals into the act because they're going to have to work now probably for the first time in a while. But in any event, <laughs> they're, they're going to be involved. I respectfully suggest to you that though I think this has been a gallant effort, that what we have produced, in effect, is a WPA project for people interested in the criminal justice system. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Terry. I'm, I'm going to ask the three panelists whether they have some further brief thoughts in response to each other's comments. Uh, I'm then going to exercise my prerogative as moderator to ask one immoderate question, uh, and then we will open up the floor to questions. We have 45 minutes, so it should be possible to get in two or three questions. Uh, but let me, let me start with Eileen Nagel with the question, are there any further comments prompted by the two subsequent speakers? Can I speak for these things? Okay. I would just make a couple of comments in reference to um, Terry's remarks. First, I want to say that I'm delighted that he now has to present his paper to this group. The last few times I've seen him, I've presented to a group of 150 defense attorneys and a few hostile trial court judges, and he got whoops and yays the whole time as I was getting tomato. So this is very nice. <laughs> okay. First, he makes the point that it is very difficult to quantify offense characteristics and offender characteristics. And I think that's very true. The one comment I would make in response is that that is precisely what judges have been doing for 200 years. And what we did was really no different except to make those quantified judgments uniform. People say to us all the time, how can you assign a sentence by some numerical value to a particular offense-offender combination? And the answer is you do so the same way judges do every day in every case that comes before them. You can't give a sentence without ultimately coming up with a number. That's the way sentences are. Secondly, he raises the point about the threshold question that determines whether an individual is sentenced to incarceration or given a non-incarceration sentence like probation, the in-out decision, and notes that the bases upon which judges determine in or out are different from the bases upon which you determine the length of sentence. 
I couldn't agree more. I've published some of my best work on that very subject. <laughs> on the other hand, when it came to writing sentencing guidelines, there was a very real problem for us, and that was that that very distinction has created a cliff as I think Judge Breyer was the first to term it, in sentencing. The American Bar Association recommended to us, for example, that we interpret the part of the statute that says, if the sentence includes a term of imprisonment, there shall be no more than 25% difference between the maximum and the minimum of that range. Well, if you take the in-out decision away from that, as the American Bar Association wanted us to do, that is, they were willing to have us say, if the minimum was four years and the maximum was five, you couldn't give a sentence of three, two, one, six, seven, eight, but you could give zero. The problem is that creates a cliff in sentencing, and that's precisely what we have had in the past. And that's why we decided to merge those two distinctions. Third, you raise the point about judges not being particularly soft and there really isn't a problem. This is the sort of the no problem answer. I think there is some explanation that has to be given to the American public who registers year in and year out on public opinion polls between 75 and 90 percent dissatisfaction with sentences. That's not to say you set sentences according to public polls or according to some consensus of the American public, but I think there does have to be some recognition given to the fact that the public has given up its rights to protection and they think that sentences are excessively lenient. And I think there is a responsibility for the commission to consider this and obviously Congress thought the same thing. Lastly, you raise the issue of alternative sentences. These are the alternatives to incarceration. I think the commission is very much in agreement with you. We are very concerned about providing for what Norval Morris calls intermediate range punishments. And I think on top of our agenda in the next immediate period of time is to look at that question, keeping in mind that you have to construct a system that is still fair, that is still punitive, and that is still deterrent, but nonetheless takes into account the kinds of issues you raise. Thank you, Eileen. Steve? Well, Mr. McCarthy, as do I, overstates a little bit in order to focus attention on a serious point. And I think what I'll do is I'll take the serious points. Um, last, this is going to be a WPA project on criminal justice. That's a serious point. Uh, the real issue, the real issue underlying the whole guidelines is, is the game worth the candle? We are gearing up an enormous administrative mechanism uh, in the courts to deal with the problem of uniformity, an enormous mechanism. This is probably the most significant change in the criminal law in this century. And those of you who work in the criminal courts will see that happening. Uh, we'll get something out of it in the way of uniformity. We will, I believe. Is the game worth the candle? We'll know five or 10 years from now. Uh, why do I think it is, in part? Because I think it's something that you may agree with. I think this will force a change in the focus of the criminal justice system from the question, did this person commit the crime? And the answer, by the, by, is by the time he's in court, the answer, as the statistics show, is by and large, yes. And imagine what a terrible system it would be if the people whom we were trying were by and large innocent. All right, so it will change the focus. It will change the focus from that question exclusively to the question, what do we do with this human being? 
and I think it's absolutely going to become apparent that it will not in every instance be to send this person to a maximum security federal penitentiary. The problem with that kind of a debate, it is intended to turn into a debate. Should we punish the person? Because the people who favor penitentiary incarceration tend to think that the alternative is something called probation, where a probation officer maybe comes to check you once every year, and so the result is nothing happens to the person. Each side perhaps parodies the other. But the challenge will be to find true punishments that are perhaps more effective from a human as well as a cost point of view than classical penitentiary incarceration for every effect and I for every crime. And I simply point out there that at the same time that the guidelines call for confinement for white collar criminals who previously would have been released on pure probation, they do not say that that confinement must take place in a maximum security penitentiary. They leave open the nature of that confinement within a broad degree, allowing those who are students of the criminal justice process to begin to work with ways of punishment that do not necessarily mean either the penitentiary on the one hand, nor simply checking never by a probation officer on the other. The other points that you made, I think, are, 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 are less. I think those are the most important ones. I would say, look, when you talk about obstruction of justice, and somebody said obstruction of justice is just not cooperating and admit you're guilty to a policeman, um, that's not so. That shouldn't be so. And what the guidelines will do for the first time, if it is so, it will be brought into the open. For all we know, that very thing is happening today. But today, the sentencing process is a black box. No one knows what goes on in the judge's head. So if there is a judge who thinks that way, under the guidelines, it will be said. And because it will be said, it can be observed and corrected in a court of appeals. Without the guidelines, we will never know whether or not that is happening. Final two points. One, humanity out of the system. Remember, as I think all of you know, that the guidelines are written for the typical case. What the guidelines say they are to be applied to, the word that is used is the heartland. The statute says, and the commission repeats, judge, if you think you have an atypical case, what you are to do is depart from the guideline as the statute allows except for race, sex, national origin, creed, religion, and socioeconomic status. Those are not grounds for departure. But with that exception, everything is open. When I say open, will that reintroduce the wide disparity? No, at least that's not the theory. Because if a judge departs, he has to write his reason down. And when he writes his reason down, it will be reviewed for the first time in a court of appeals. And if the commission discovers that the courts of appeals are accepting reasons that are bizarre or that shouldn't be accepted, then they can rewrite the guidelines to tend to write out more and more of the discretion if that discretion is being abused. So you see, there's quite a big safety valve. If you read the Senate report, what you will discover is the Senate believed. Come up there. All right, well then let, let me ask one question to get people going. There is a very large source of disparity which the guidelines do not address, and that is the disparity reflected in the charging discretion of the prosecutor. The prosecutor can choose what 
crimes to charge. The prosecutor can drop charges as part of plea bargains. And if those plea bargains exist before the charges are formally filed in court, that will be completely invisible. The authors of the guidelines made a fundamental choice to have everything based on the charge of which the defendant was convicted. This is a conviction-based system. There is an alternative system which could be called a real offense system in which the guidelines would look through the actual conviction uh, to a complete description of what happened. So that if the facts were to show, for example, murder by poison, uh, that would be treated as if it were first-degree murder, and the fact that the defendant had been charged with reckless endangerment uh, would not be preclusive, although it would, of course, set a maximum. The question I want to put to the two members of the Sentencing Commission, uh, and which I hope uh, Mr. McCarthy will also address, is why was the decision made to have the base be the actual conviction rather than real offense, or in the case of the first circulated draft of the commission, what the commission called modified real offense sentencing. It's a very fundamental issue in deciding how this will come out, and I think in the amount of residual disparity. So I will put it uh, to either of the two commissioners. I'm going to just give you an illustration that perhaps will make the problem more complex, and then I'm going to let Judge Breyer uh, take the second part of the question. But that is that it is really not precisely a conviction charge system. It is closer to the modified system with which we began, but it is not as close to that real offense system that you refer to in the September draft. Let me give you an example. If an individual is indicted on five counts of fraud, and there's $10,000 alleged in each fraud, and the plea agreement is to one count of fraud, it is true that the maximum sentence is defined by the sentence for the one count, and it is also true that the one count of fraud is the base sentence with which you begin. It is, however, true that in working the guidelines, you go and you add up the money from the other four counts, so that in effect, once you go past the base sentence, you begin to take into account real offense behavior. That works that way for about 90% of the individual guidelines. There are some exceptions. One of the most noteworthy is bank robbery. The second is arson. I consider it to be a fluke. Um, I think Terry was waiting for Steve and I to disagree, and you may now have put your finger on it. I consider it to be a fluke that the way the guidelines work, if an individual is indicted for five counts of bank robbery, but a plea agreement is reached to one count, the other four disappear out the window. Steve will tell <laughs> I'll let him tell you what he wants, but I consider that to be a fluke, and I think he probably liked it. So let me turn over. But anyway, there, for most of the guidelines, the way they work is that you start with the offense of conviction, but all of those adjustments are based on real offense behavior. So it is modified with the exception of arson and bank robbery. Do you want to add something to that point or something? No, you, if you, not, uh, I, I, I mean, we're really in the esoteric. <laughs> I enjoy you two disagreeing, by the way. Yeah. 
<laughs> I wanted to give you something. Yeah, I mean, uh, the, the real versus, the, I mean, that is very philosophical, and we wrote something on it in the introduction, and those of you who are really interested, you ought to read that introduction, and I've been writing something on it too, which you can read at some point. Uh, essentially, no system is either, you can't have a system that's either pure real offense, you can't have a system that's pure charge offense. Everything has to be a mix. A, a pure real offense system will go and say, what did this person really do? I mean, this is after he's been convicted. After all, the jury said what he did. What, are you going to have another trial on what he really did? I mean, I mean uh, you know, let's, let's, I mean, sometimes we're going to have to start second guessing the jury. You know, I mean, in some ways we're going to have to. Uh, but let's keep that to a minimum. I mean, after all, uh, you're supposed to be uh, punished for what a jury convicts you of, uh, not what uh, a judge happens to think you did. Well, you have to begin to qualify that, because, because after all, some things you're not going to put before the jury. See, I mean, how much money was taken? How much dope was taken? How much drugs did he have? What's he supposed to do? Tell the jury, I didn't take any drugs, but by the way, if I did, it was two pounds. <laughs> I mean, obviously, they're not going to put that issue before the jury. Rather, that issue of how much drug was involved is going to have to go to the ju judge at the time of sentencing. And so the simplest way, if you want to think about it in a minute, is it's a compromise. And it stems from the fact, and then there are certain escape valves. See, the, it's, it, it's based on the fact that by and large, by and large, what the person was convicted of is what he did. You know, I mean, it's not going to be that great discrepancy. Then for certain things where you think they wouldn't have come up right as elements of the crime, unless the jury wouldn't have considered them, if they're really important, and they better be really important, then let the judge consider them later. Like how much money was involved, how much drug was involved, did he try to shoot the teller? All right? You think there are too many in there. You think there are far too many. I think, well, it was a compromise how many we put in, and time will tell. Maybe we could simplify it by eliminating a few. Maybe we will over time. Uh, or maybe we'll add some, we'll discover some are there. But it's a compromise. Now, one, one further point on that that I want to make in response to what uh, um, uh, Mr. McCarthy said. Uh, the, the, the way this compromise works, and the compromise is the base offense level, is aimed at base offense level goes on what he's convicted of, robbery. The specific offense characteristics and the adjustments are what really happened. You see, did he, how much money did he take? Did he hit the teller? Didn't he kill the teller, et cetera? You say, that sort of thing. That's the compromise. Now, what happens if it works something really weird? I mean, suppose, in fact, it turned out that this guy was one of the worst beating up all kinds of people, etc. That doesn't come out in the charge. It doesn't come out in the conviction. A tax offense. What, what would you do if you, well, all right, well, tax, <laughs> tax, right. What would you do if you're the judge? You could depart. You could depart. Would it be a good ground for departure to say, but the facts here, which are not contested, or they were contested and we had a hearing about it, revealed that in fact something much more serious was going on? I don't see why that isn't a good ground for departure. You have to use it sparingly and with judgment. And it will be, but these are fluke cases, you see. They'll be the odd cases, and we're writing for the ordinary case. In that respect, I honestly don't see, and I've heard the argument made and again and again, I do see how these guidelines gave to the commission tremendous power. That was their object. Their object was to give to the commission in the statute the power to write sentencing guidelines. Not totally uncontrolled, by the way. When you read that statute, you will discover a tremendous number of rather specific instructions. What I don't understand is how these guidelines increase the power of the prosecutor. I would think to the contrary, if anything, after all, right today, the prosecutor can control the total penalty 
by choosing his charge. A judge cannot today give a sentence which exceeds the maximum in the statute. He still has that power under the guideline, but I don't see any additional power that he has. And the very fact that he has to explain everything to the judge, the very fact that the judge has to find out what's really going on, the very fact that the judge is then bound by guidelines unless he departs in light of what he finds out is going on, all are things which, compared to today, limit the power of the prosecutor and limit the power of everybody else involved too, I might add. So I really don't see the argument that it increases somehow. I've, I've heard this sort of hydraulic argument where you compare the system to water in pipes, and then you say, well, the pipe shut off here, so it must go up there. And aside from the power of the hydraulic metaphor, I don't understand the basis for saying that the prosecutor's power is really increased. Darren, would you like to speak on this? Yes, to the very last subject, and then maybe raise one of the problems in the field that we have because of what has been said. First of all, the power of the prosecutor. Uh, the judge has mentioned the charge power of a prosecutor. Indeed, the prosecutors in their handbook, their red manual, talk about the things they can do at the charge stage, which they couldn't do at, uh, at a stage after they brought the indictment. They obviously feel they've got more power there. That's not the worst problem. The worst problem is that the prosecutor can totally, totally avoid these guidelines if the defendant was fortunate enough to commit his crime with somebody else. Now, if he committed all by himself, they can't do it. But if he was fortunate enough to be a co-conspirator, then you know what the prosecutor can do under the guidelines? The prosecutor can literally decide that notwithstanding the fact the sentence in this case was to be 15 years, the prosecutor likes this person, the words of Ardar, he is a substantial cooperator, and now they can decide he does not only doesn't have to go to jail, they can make him a federal judge if they want. Uh, they can't, to me, uh, that's facetious, of course, but that to me, that to me, I think, is, is really putting the control in the prosecutor. But that's true today. It's true today. I mean, that's true today. We're just comparing it to today. Oh, it, I don't think it's true today. Well, you mean a prosecutor today can go to any judge and say, Judge, I'd like to tell you something. This fellow's cooperated. Sure. And the judge has complete power today to give any sentence he wants in light of that cooperation. All we've done and all we've intended to do in that respect is reserve the same power to the judge to adjust the sentence in light of cooperation that he has at present. There's no increase in prosecutorial power there. I agree that there are many, many aspects of the criminal justice system that for better or for worse, these guidelines don't change, and that's one of them. What I don't see is how it increases the power of the prosecutor compared to today. I do see ways in which it limits it at the same way that it limits everybody else's power. If I may, one other point. The, just to bring up some of the practical problems that arise, um, I agree, by the way, that you really, I guess what you want to call it now is a modified charge uh, system yes, is what I you have, is, and I think that's probably right. pretty close. It is. Uh, uh, assume the hypothetical here, just, just for a moment. We've got a fellow who goes in to rob a bank. He happens to have a gun in his pocket when he robs the bank. Okay, that's worth some points. Right, five, I think, I don't remember, but that's worth a few points. He goes in there with a gun in his pocket, he's arrested, and for some reason they don't find the gun. Now I'm in the process of pleading this fellow, and now I send him into the probation department. We happen to have a phenomenal probation department 
Northern Illinois. And they have, in my opinion, they've done more good for the system than anybody over the years. They're totally being changed with this system. But in any event, we send people in there. We say cooperate, be honest with them, tell them everything. That's what criminal defense lawyers do, believe it or not, with the probation office in Northern Illinois. I don't know that that's the case in other places. Now, under this system, stop for a moment. Do I tell my defendant, go in there and tell him you had a gun in your pocket? No, I can't do that. Because if I do that, we're adding automatically X number of points. I don't remember the points of that. So now we have a problem. The system, and maybe that's maybe I've been too long in the system and, and I'm, I'm used to it, but now we have a system where I can no longer tell my client to go in there and fess up to the probation officer. You, we have this as a good point. It's quite an important point. Uh, and it was a point that was bothering us in the context of, uh, of uh, cooperation. You see, particularly because uh, suppose the prosecutor says, hey, I want you to cooperate. And now you say to your client, uh, yeah, yeah, but if in the course of cooperating you tell him, in fact, there was a ton of marijuana instead of just a pound, uh, whether he likes it or not, the judge is going to really bump up that sentence. He will under the guidelines. So what we did in the context of cooperation is we've uh, uh, amended it so that it's possible for the prosecution to work out an agreement with you so that anything that's revealed in the course of this cooperation will not be used as an adjustment to sure. the guidelines. Now, you've, you've taken that example and moved it into the different context where, in fact, the person will uh, have to choose with his probation officer as to what extent to tell him the whole thing and what extent not. And I agree that's a dilemma. I mean, I, I can see arguments uh, both ways on that one. I mean, you can say, you know, after all, if he wants the benefit of two levels for cooperating, he better cooperate. And if he's a bigger crook than we thought, he better say. And if he doesn't want to say, well, then he doesn't. Nothing tells him he has to say. But then you're not going to get the two levels for cooperating if they find out you had the gun in the pocket later on. Of course, if he at least tells them and they find out later on, he'll at least get the two levels. <laughs> if they find out later on and he hasn't told them, he won't. But if they never find out, I guess he won't get the multiple stuff. All right, so anyway, that's it. He gains two and loses right, five. Right. I, I want to say something for, for 15 seconds about uh, the, the motive of asking the question. Steve has said it several times uh, that the, nothing in the choice of how the sentencing is made or, or prosecutorial power increases the prosecutor, prosecutor's power. That's correct. The part of the motive for the question was exploring where within the criminal justice system there is relative discretion. I think Steve and Eileen would agree that the amount of discretion vested in prosecutors and judges, the ratio has changed. That is, yes. the prosecutor still has the same absolute power as before. Yes. The district judge's power has been diminished. So the ratio of prosecutorial to district court power has changed. And that's a, that's a fundamental consequence. Uh, it may be good or bad. Right. I, I'm not trying to say whether it is good or bad. It's something that has to be observed. The floor is now open for questions. Uh, our first question over there, please. Thank you. If we, when we want to uh, sentence similarly situated offenders similarly, we first have to decide which differences are relevant and which are trivial. Uh, and there's one I'd like to focus on that uh, Commissioner Nagel mentioned in the laundry list of uh, relevant factors. Uh, instead of victim status, uh, she mentioned official victim, vulnerable victim, and one other. I want to leave aside the official victim. We think of things like killing cops and people who are paid to go into dangerous situations the rest of us will tend to avoid. But I want to um, focus on the vulnerable victim 
question and maybe the related question of the use of victim impact statements in sentencing or before juries, which conservatives and law and order types seem to be supporting. Um, I want to take a very brief scenario that I think this leads to that I have a problem with and ask the panelists to comment. So you have two murders which are identical, say for the sake of simplicity, they're both uh, unprovoked, the person shot in the back of the head without warning. The only difference is the victim. Killer A's victim is a married woman with five kids, head of the PTA, who shot on her way to morning mass. Killer B's victim is this sort of healthy, strapping, sort of dangerous looking, young working class male who in fact has a long list, a long police record of minor offenses, was shot outside a porno theater, but in the context of the killing was a purely innocent victim on that day of his life, not on other days of his life. Under a traditional unbridled discretion system, killer A will tend to get a more severe punishment. That's sort of the way it tends to work. Under either, it seems to me under either guidelines where the, that difference is made explicitly relevant or if victim impact statements are used, i.e. no one really cares that Killer B's victim is gone because he's a drifter, you know, his parents and he didn't get along, you will get the same difference and it will have been sort of legitimated and made to look more objective by the system. My problem with this is it seems that's a very strong statement by society that some human lives are worth more than others and that it is an abandonment of the more modern notion of murder as an offense against the sanctity of human life and a return to sort of the Anglo-Saxon notion of murder as a tort where you pay differential wear guilt depending on the uh, societal status of the victim. And um, I would like uh, you know, anyone who would like to comment on this to do so. I'm a I was with you until the end and then suddenly I lost it. I thought what you were asking was whether we thought there should be a distinction between the married woman who has five children and the dangerous-looking male who's outside the porno. Okay, if all, if all human lives are equally sacred and they're taking equally offensive, what is the relevance? Why, are, why how does the, 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 the vulnerability of the victim make cases not similarly situated? Why is that a relevant, uh, a relevant criterion? Okay, let me just say one thing, and then uh, Steve wants to make a point too, and that is that uh, when we talk about a vulnerable victim, for us, we're talking about a defendant who targets particularly vulnerable victims, the aged, the infirm, the handicapped, etc. So that's what we meant by vulnerable victim. We would not make a distinction, and I think you read this correctly, in the guidelines between the two examples, the hypotheticals you give, and much as I would consider myself very sympathetic to victims' rights, I could not justify a distinction between the penalty for those two persons. I can't put a higher or a lesser value on two lives where they're both innocent. Um, so I couldn't justify a position that, that would take a, a different uh, road for each of those two. See, there's, uh, I'd like to add, because there's a deep aspect to your question, um, which I want to flush out. The, the, um, the uh, immediate thing, well, we don't have murders in the federal system. There are 54 yes. murders. You know, so we didn't look at those examples. And I'd be amazed if, in fact, you find first-degree murders uh, in the federal system that really are distinguishable in terms of punishment along the lines you suggest. Maybe there are. Uh, I, I have no evidence that there is such a thing. Uh, but your question's really deeper than that. It was really the one Eileen answered. Uh, and it's even deeper than that for this reason, um, uh, that uh, what you're really saying 
is um, the commission. See, what did we do? We took it as we found it. We took it as we found it. Uh, we eliminated only those distinctions that we could say both. Uh, I, we eliminated ones that don't exist in empirical practice. But then we used the ones that are empirically important. As long as we couldn't say, to, you see, the ones that really do exist right today in the federal system and are important for punishment, those are where we based our distinctions. That's why we give people uh, uh, increased penalties for hurting somebody, you see? We took the system as we found it, except where we thought it was totally irrational. What your deep part of your question is, well, why did you do that? Because uh, history might have built into it all its own irrationalities. I mean, did anybody ever really think through points like you just made? and a hundred others of a similar sort. Why didn't the commission sit down and really go and rationalize this thing and not just take history? And the short answer to that is we couldn't. We couldn't because there's such good arguments all over the place pointing in opposite directions. And I would tell you in a moment which will shock you that my instinct is a public body can't. A public body can't get much further than weeding out the gross irrationalities because a public body is made up of seven people or eight people or ten people of very different points of view. And by the time you discover these different people going into their own theories of punishment, and by the time you ask people on a list, you try it yourself, try listing all the crimes that there are in rank order of punishability merit. All right? Try it. Uh, sit down as a parlor game and do it. And then collect results from your friends and see if they all jog. And I'll tell you, they won't. And what you will discover, because there are commissions that claim to have done that, and my own belief is what's happened there is two things have happened. First, there were all sorts of compromises internally within the commission. And then after they got finished compromising different points of view, they announced that that was the correct rank order of punishment, meritability, severity. See, I, my own experience leads me to think, if I'm, if I'm a little pejorative about it, that that approach leads to what I would call the crime of the day. And the crime of the day is each different person's idea of what's the worst crime. And what tends to happen is X, you believe that uh, 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 environmental crimes are terrible. You believe that civil rights crimes are terrible. You believe that crimes of violence are particular. You believe that sex-related crimes. Are and pretty soon, you build a system which, although it might have the appearance of, of, of uh, uh, rationality, in fact has the, uh, uh, the, the content of irrational compromise. And that led me to the conclusion that the best way to go about it was empirically looking to see what had been important in terms of, over the course of history, actual judgments, uh, actual important distinctions, and weed out those, only those, where it's perfectly obvious it's really crazy. And then let us take experience with this into account over time and get on with the weeding and adding project through a kind of consensus that isn't this effort to rank all crimes in all possible circumstances in order of absolute merit punishability. Let, let me very, take. Can I very briefly make a comment? Very, very briefly, since at eight minutes a question, we will have a very small With the exceptions the judge mentioned of the murder, I thought your question was fantastic, and that focuses on the major issue that we're talking about. In, in the world prior to the sentencing guidelines, given that situation, we would get up in mitigation uh, and in extenuation before the judge, and we would in effect argue, judge, this victim deserved to die, and my client was merely put there to fill God's will. Uh, that would be our argument. And frankly, that's the kind of a thing I think a judge would look at and say, you know what? Yeah. And, that's why and, we they, factored it and they factored it out. And then, no, that's a, an interesting thing. Which way you want to go? I think, <laughs> May I turn the question over here? I've 
I wish questioners would state their, their names and affiliations for purposes of identification only. <laughs> in the event of any subsequent proceedings, there will be a two-level reduction in the severity as a consequence. Cooperation now. I'd be happy to. My name is David Schwartz. I'm, I consider myself unaffiliated, though I'm, I'm employed by Judge Kaczynski. Uh, quick question for Judge Breyer. How many criminal defendants have you actually sentenced? I haven't, if you mean to say you're, that's a, is that like an ad hominem attack. I haven't. <laughs> no, 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 not at all. I haven't sentenced people. It, it, I, I, I would not. just be interested to know if you had, no. maybe you could reflect on or at least give us some appreciation of the. the no, of the three judges, you have two judges who have sentenced people criminally, uh, and uh, are, uh, you have one judge uh, who uh, has not. And therefore, I think what I should say should it be discounted by at least 15% to reflect that Thank lack you. of experience. Two levels. Right. Please. Um, Robert Blecker, law teacher at New York Law School. Um, Professor Nagel, I believe you said in your opening comments that the enabling legislation for the Sentencing Commission charged you with maximizing all the traditional public, uh, purposes of punishment simultaneously. Not with all of the traditional, there is a list of four. Well, the, the, the four traditional. Right, that's um, correct. Do I infer correctly that you consider and considered that an impossible task because there are trade-offs? And my general question is, to what degree were you bound by that charge? And did you find yourself insufficiently guided by virtue of the fact that you were told to maximize four things simultaneously? I think, well, let me say this. In the beginning, that was a major source for debate. And the debate turned on the question of whether the just desert thesis, as has been advocated by uh, Von Hirsch and uh, Rick Singer and others, should predominate, or whether a crime control thesis should predominate. First, the commission looked to the legislative history. The suggestion had been made by Professor Von Hirsch in his testimony before the Senate that, in fact, the commission should adopt a just desert-based theory, or at the very least, a just desert-based theory modified by deterrence. The Senate, I think, patently rejected that suggestion, and we were guided by the fact that the Senate had rejected that suggestion. Secondly, our position was that the Comprehensive Crime Control Act could not take the very title of the act and make it a secondary purpose. At the same time, Congress was very specific in setting forth four purposes and saying that we should try to maximize all four. Now, admittedly, you can't do that in every sentence. And so what we did was we spent a good deal of time trying to resolve the differences, and in the end decided that we would follow the empirical approach that both Steve and I have described with an understanding that all of those sentences in the past had reflected concerns for deterrence, concerns for crime control, concerns for just punishment for the offense, but that we would not follow the lead, for example, of Minnesota, which was the first state to issue guidelines, by saying that we would adopt a single purpose. Now, that was partly because of the way the statute was written, but also partly because the Just Desserts proponents advocated a limit on all punishment, a three-year cap on all sentences with a maximum of five only for murder, and that you set sentences according to the number of available spaces in the prison. As I mentioned, the Senate rejected the suggestion by Senator Mathias by a vote of, I think, 93 to 1 that we not use prison capacity as a basis for setting sentences. And we could not agree to a theory that said less is better than more punishment. We felt that we had to look at each individual offense. 
at the same time, I think in some ways, had we agreed to some particular theory, it might have helped us resolve some issues, but in the end, I don't think it inhibited us. I think it actually enhanced the debate because we were always sensitive to the multiple purposes. I think there are multiple purposes to sentencing, and I think it's perfectly appropriate for the Congress and for us to have followed that directive to have a multi-purpose approach. Alan Forrest, I'm with the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. In fact, uh, my greatest exposure to criminal law has been by watching Hill Street Blues. <laughs> Those are state crimes. However, I've been told that, that the courts are oftentimes called please are us, and I'm wondering how the new guidelines would impact on plea bargaining. It would seem that a criminal defendant who has a good chance of losing his case uh, and then probably has calculated what kind of sentence he'll get under the new sentencing guidelines, would plea a bargain for a, maybe half that sentence, not going, not risking, or not taking the chance that he might actually win, figuring, well, if I lose, I'm going, going up the river for four years. However, I'll take the two years now, and then the prosecutor says, well, I saved myself the time of going through a trial, so we'll give him the two years. Could, could, could I, uh, since Terry is outnumbered two to one, let me give Terry the first crack at that. Oh, uh, I think your question is excellent, uh, and, and I think that's going to be one of, because we really don't know yet, in truth, but that's going to be one of the, the practical problems. Uh, be, being, being honest and sincere with ourselves, assuming I can figure out the guidelines, by the way, and, 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 and I don't mean not figure the book, but get the information from the prosecutors, what I'm talking about, really, and I figure out, and I go to my client real quickly, and I say to client, client, you're 17. We talk to them that way now. You're, you're 17, fellow. Okay, fine. He knows what he is. He wears it around with him. 17. Now, that means that if you're convicted, you're going to spend two years to two and a half years in prison. The judge will sentence you to something like that, okay? Now, he says, okay, fine. Well, what if I plead guilty? Well, you'll probably get to two. What if I go to trial? You'll probably get to two and a half. Let's roll them. And I, I was born into this system. I started when I was about 12. But I started trying cases when we had the minimum mandatory for drug cases until that goofy Leary got them thrown out. And we used to go to trial all the time with stupid, dumb cases. And every once in a while, we won them. They didn't deserve to be won, but we won them. Because you say to somebody, you're going to get five, you plead. Then in those days, and it was seven if you didn't plead. And so the guy said, the seven, that's only a third of the seven. By the old system, that's two-thirds of a year. Let's roll the dice. I suspect you're going to get that. And, and, and if that's the case, if that's the circumstance, then we have disserved the system. I, I can't predict it, and I'm not going to predict it, but I think we have. Plea bargaining, we have plea bargaining. But the prosecutor's hands, and they have purposely tied the prosecutor's hands in some ways, as many as they humanly could, with, as I think, with a couple of major exceptions, but they've tied the prosecutor's hands. Their feeling is uh, Paul on the road to Damascus, as I call it, the acceptance of responsibility one. That's the prosecutors to give away. Uh, the judges in our district don't agree with that, but that was the intention, that that they can give away. They can also bargain within the range, the 25% range. Beyond that, prosecutors can't do a heck of a lot. Well, they can bargain. I mean, the, the, the guidelines say that they're, I mean, for better or for worse, we're criticized both ways. Uh, half, of them, half the people told us that plea bargaining is the most terrible thing they ever heard of. It's a disgrace and wrecks the whole system. The other half told us it's 85% of the system runs on it and you're going to destroy the system if you abolish it. And anyway, it's pretty good because if the prosecutor and the defense attorney and the defendant all agree that this is an appropriate result, it probably is. So we had both arguments and, and uh, because of our uh, in 
we uh, punted and we said, uh, we are not going to change the system at the present time. And therefore, it explicitly says that as long as you, the defense attorney and the prosecutor, set out the true facts and explain to the judge why it is you want to have him accept a bargain, which is other than what the, the uh, uh, guidelines would call for, the judge can do it. But he has to have in front of him the reasons. He has to have the truth, you see, and why you want that bargain. And our theory, of course, is to collect all that information over time and thus learn a little bit more about plea bargaining than we know at present. And when we find out why judges are departing from plea bargainings and why people are making those plea bargains, we'll be in a better position, a better position, to uh, work with that process, possibly trying to change it, than we are at present. So the guidelines don't prevent that. With a footnote, I'll say the Justice Department has issued a manual in which it tells its prosecutors that in certain areas it doesn't want them to bargain. Well, one thing I'll tell you is true. It takes two to make a bargain. <laughs> but that's a question of department policy. It has nothing to do with the guidelines. Let me add one point. I, obviously, going to law school didn't cure me of this. I still have the empiricist in me. We did look at 2,000 cases so far that have been sentenced under the guidelines, and there is no evidence that there has been a reduction in the number of pleas. Now, I think it's for a bad reason because the preliminary research suggests that while we may have tried to tie the prosecutor's hands, the ropes were obviously made of toothpaste because they're going like this and giving away the courthouse. But nonetheless, there have not been, uh, there's not been a reduction in the first 2,000 cases. Uh, my name is Joe Cosby. I just finished up a clerkship in the Fifth Circuit. Um, I'm a free agent right now if you want me. Uh, well, I wanted to ask about constitutionality here, since that's the focus of the symposium. Um, for each of the panelists, what do you consider the one or two best arguments that the sentencing guidelines are unconstitutional, and what do you think of the recent circuit court case on uh, the constitutionality of the guidelines? I, I will grant the panelists leave not to answer that question if they think it inappropriate to answer it, given the fact that the question is before the Supreme Court and that one of the members of the commission is a judge, which is, of course, why he was declared unconstitutional. Uh, I, I could answer on that. We yeah. prefer not to. I could I answer. Guess. Right. Certainly Terry can talk to that. That's nice. I'm free to do all these things. Uh, uh, certainly, real quickly, separation of powers, I, I, I would guess, is going to be the big argument. Uh, I think the, the, the question you asked also is, uh, what about the Ninth Circuit case? I think you asked about that. Frankly, this is a terrible thing to say, uh, but I don't think that, uh, we, that the Supreme Court isn't going to take a scorecard and add up and say, oh, here we have uh, 116 district court judges found them unconstitutional and only 72 found them constitutional. Okay, that's a good argument for the unconstitutionality. Frankly, I don't think the Supreme Court, uh, if I was given my brothers and I wrote our, our chief judge, I told him that if I were he, uh, I would not decide this issue. I would not have us brief it, and I would not have the Seventh Circuit have to go through the problem of briefing it, because terribly, whatever they do doesn't mean anything for once. And so the Seventh Circuit and the district court judges, whatever they do doesn't mean anything. The Supreme Court's going to get a shot. They're going to get the shot. I would hope to God they decide it as soon as possible so we can get on with whatever it is, and uh, hopefully by the first of the year we'll get a shot at it. Separation of power being probably the biggest issue. Right. Often, I, I agree, although I only comment on that is I'll say that's true. Many, many times in a day, sometimes, or a month, I think, you know, I really could help the Supreme Court. I really could help them. And, uh, and very often, they don't think that. 
I, I will uh, make one comment on that, just to remind you of an historical event. The last time a federal commission was invalidated as a violation of separation of powers was the Federal Election Commission, uh, the appointment of which was invalidated because some of the commissioners were appointed by Congress, and the Supreme Court held that people so appointed could not exercise executive power. The, the upshot of that was both the declaration and a judicial order uh, enforcing everything the commission had done to that date and for 180 days thereafter. First there was a 90-day stay and then there was a final stay. Congress then enacted legislation changing the appointment without changing anything the Federal Election Commission had changed. So there is uh, a question behind all of the difficulties about who are the members and what was their appointment about whether any of it in the end would matter. It's not something I want to approach, but it's something you all ought to remember since 1976 is not that far in the past. One final question. My name is Lauren Caffey. I'm a state trial court judge, and um, I find the discussion about sentencing quite invigorating. I've worked under two sentencing systems uh, in my state. Originally, I determined indeterminate sentence system, and then for the last number of years, an indeterminate system. And for the benefit of those who don't work in the criminal system, they need to be, when they're trying to understand this sentencing guideline concept, they need to understand that identical sentencing is not equality of sentencing, and that no sentencing judge ever steps into the same sentencing stream twice. Every case does, does bear its differences. The benefit of the guidelines would appear to be the ability to enunciate the reasoning and such. But my, my questions, two quick ones. Um, first of all, is there any sort of review procedure proposed that uh, short of actual appeal on either the ordinary sentencing or a departure from the sentencing? And I would presume a trial court judge must make record of his reasons for departure if he chooses to do so. Appeal. I, for the first time in the statute, both sides can appeal. And so you see, in the federal system, unlike a lot of the states, there never has been appellate review of sentencing. Indeed, if there had been appellate review of sentencing, as there is in the common law countries of the United States and most places in Europe and in a lot of the states, we probably perhaps would never have had the, the statute enacted. But would this be a, an approach that might be uh, make it more amenable to all parties uh, concerned? And is the question of possibility of mandatory sentences really the bone of contention with the trial judges? What would you, mandatories are in statutes. Minimums, yeah. Yeah, that, that we have no control over. Oh. And, and the primary review will be at the appellate level first, and the commission will uh, gather the data, see what's happening, and possibly revise generally in light of that. Thank you. And any further comments from the panel? Well, I thank both the panel and the audience for its patience. Uh, before you give the panel a well-deserved uh, round of applause, I'd like to remind all of you that there is a reception and award presentation immediately following in the stateroom. The master of ceremonies for the award presentation will be the author of the opinion of the Ninth Circuit declaring that Judge Breyer was a walking violation of Articles 2 and 3. <laughs> but I trust that he will be as reticent about this subject as our panelists have been. Thank you very much.